Back in 1957, the same year the Soviets put Sputnik, the world's first artificial satellite, into orbit, and Elvis Presley's All Shook Up hit the top of the Billboard charts, the UN established the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA. The goal was to promote peaceful uses of atomic energy, provide assistance on nuclear safety, and prevent nuclear materials from getting into the wrong hands. How does that work out? FTD Research Fellow Andrea Stricker has taken a hard look at the IAEA and written a chapter about it for FTD's recently published monograph on international organizations. Andrea also has been keeping tabs on the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW. She's with us today, as is Anthony Ruggiero, a senior fellow at FTD who has served in the National Security Council, advising the White House on a range of issues, weapons of mass destruction among them. Also with us, Richard Goldberg, senior advisor to FDD, who has served in the National Security Council and in both houses of Congress. He's the editor of that recently published monograph, which is titled A Better Blueprint for International Organizations. I'm Cliff May. We're pleased to have you with us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Okay, first question, just to, just to establish con- context, am I right to assume, Andrea, that American taxpayers are the major funders of both of these organizations? Yeah, we are. The IA we fund to the tune of about 25%. We spend about $200 million annually for their budget. Uh, The OPCW is around the same. So we do have quite a bit of influence at both of the organizations. Well, or we should have quite a bit of influence, but I guess we'll get to that. Just going back for a little historical context, this was really the IAEA, at least, was President Dwight Eisenhower's idea, wasn't it? He had uh, he made that Adams for Peace. That was the title of a, a speech he delivered in 1953, and it kind of created the background for the for for this idea of uh, of an organization that would make sure that nuclear power was used for peaceful rather than military purposes. Certainly, not by rogue regimes or others who we saw as adversaries uh, or, or bad uh, bad actors. That's right. So the IA was established in 1957 to help facilitate Eisenhower's vision of sharing peaceful uses of nuclear energy, but also to ensure that states weren't using it to make nuclear weapons in secret. So when a state would sign up to the IEA, they had to conclude a, a basic safeguards agreement with the agency. So if they had a, a reactor, the IEA would go in and take samples, make sure they're not diverting any plutonium to nuclear weapons. So then in 1970, under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the NPT, the IA was able then to have an official mandate 
to ensure that states were in compliance with their Article Three pledge under the NPT uh, to, to conclude safeguards agreements and also not make nuclear weapons. So safeguards have evolved. They have not always been very rigorous. Uh, States now are required to have what's called a comprehensive safeguards agreement or a CSA. So they have to disclose any place that they're making nuclear material. Uh, they have to provide the IA with information about their plans and any nuclear facilities that may be related to those plans. Uh, so as of 2020, the IA carried out over 2,000 inspections around the world in 183 countries. So Officially, there are 173 active member states, so that's quite a big task. And just to follow up on that for one second, so to be a, you have to join it. That makes you a member state, and if you join it, if you agree to, okay, you've, you've embraced, you've signed a treaty, and now you are a member, you get certain benefits, but you accept certain restrictions in, in exchange for those benefits. Is that correct? That's right. Anthony, talk a little bit about North Korea. Where, did, where does North Korea fit in all of this? Well, in North Korea, with regard to the IEA, um, you know, the, there's been some challenges there, and the, certainly in the 1990s, and uh, you know, the IEA has been uh, asked to implement the limited nuclear deals that the United States has negotiated with the IE or with with North Korea in the in the past. As of right now, there there's no. IEA inspections in North Korea, there's really no limits on North Korea's nuclear program whatsoever. Uh, you know, it's a, it's certainly a cautionary tale. I think the North Koreans, um, you know, certainly built their nuclear weapons program from what they, you know, what they had, what they claimed was a peaceful nuclear program. Um, it's certainly an example of, uh, you know, what could go wrong, I think, in the Iran case file as well. Well, just to be clear, North Korea is a member of uh, of the IAEA, but it is also a rogue regime, and it has also, as a member, managed to develop nuclear weapons and increasingly sophisticated missiles to deliver them. Is all that correct? Am I wrong anywhere there? Well, while they were a member, I mean, the North Koreans have submitted and claimed that they've withdrawn from the NPT in the in the 2000s uh you know i think some people could refer to that as the second nuclear crisis with north korea in the george w bush administration so certainly but by that point they had already developed a nuclear weapon uh you know their test did not come until 2006 but they certainly were doing more than that before in the 1990s that's what set off the first nuclear crisis where the iaea uh you know through through inspections and through other other means uh, discovered that the North Koreans were lying on their declaration uh, that's required for their safeguards obligations. But certainly under, you know, under the peaceful uses guys, they were able to uh, develop a nuclear weapons program. And Rachel, with two things, I want, I want you to just talk more generally about these organizations, their purposes, particularly the IAEA, but we'll get, we'll get into chemical weapons in a minute. And over over time, did they start? Did they seem to be successful for a lot of years, and then have they kind of fallen down on the job? Um, has it become more difficult because of the rise of nations after World War II? Not immediately, but eventually, that were well, the Soviet Union was adversarial to from the beginning, and of course, China has become increasingly adversarial. I suppose even as it's even after we accepted it as a member of the Security Council. 
talk generally about that, that, that Rich. Your, your thoughts on this the, uh, on these organizations? To zoom out a little bit, you know, when we did the monograph, we're looking at different types of international organizations. I encourage everybody to, to, to read that blueprint. And we're looking at some organizations that structurally, their governance is just systemically rigged against the ability to change, reform, accomplish certain things in the U.S. interest. There are others that have good governance structures uh, where the U.S. can wield its influence. It's one thing to give money. It's also something that that money comes with investment oversight, you know, on a board of governors, et cetera, be able to influence elections, uh, oversight of how people are spending their money. Uh, and in, in some cases, you have organizations that either serve no purpose anymore or are serving a bad purpose, uh, contrary to U.S. interests, or that are serving good interests that, that do support U.S. interests. And how do we make those organizations better in the face of opposition from rogue states? To me, and you know, Anthony, Andrea, welcome to Agree Disagree. The IAEA to me is one of those that falls in the camp of uh, pretty good governance structure where we can use our influence with with our money on the board of governors. Great example, um, love to talk about is the election of the last director general, where we're able to use that muscle with our with our allies um, to put in place a director general through election process that would represent the interests uh, of the international community, the way that we view what the IAEA should be. Um, it has a purpose that supports U.S. interests of nonproliferation, of, of safeguards, of preventing the transfer of nuclear weapons, the development of nuclear weapons in some states. Uh, but the question is, is it actually achieving all of those goals? Um, could anyone else do it? Probably not. Um, how do we improve the IAEA? How do we enforce safeguards? How do we not uh, end up in a, in a situation where you have a North Korea? How do we get Iran right at the moment uh, and not have another North Korea type situation with the Iranians? Um, I think these are the open questions that we need policymakers to very much concentrate on because we have the ability to influence. We have to intensely focus on it. Let's maybe talk about Iran for, for a second then. The Islamic Republic of Iran Here's what's problematic. The, uh, they're a member um, under the JCPOA, the uh, Iran deal that o President Obama negotiated and concluded without congressional support, without a signature, but he said, I like it. They like it. The UN seems to like it. So we'll go ahead with it. President Trump withdrew from it. But under that agreement, Iran's rulers are supposed to have agreed to halt their nuclear weapons program. Uh, Andrew, is it not problematic that they've never acknowledged that they have a nuclear weapons program? Though the program they're agreeing to halt is when they say we never had, which makes it not that difficult for us to halt it. Yeah, it's a huge problem. It's been going on since 2002 when the world first, first saw that Iran had secret major covert nuclear sites. So the, the UN put in place penalties after a few years. We had several sets of UN resolutions from 06 to 2010. Then the JCPOA came in and they said, well, Iran had to commit not to ever develop nuclear weapons. And then in 2018, uh, the Israelis stole an archive of nuclear material, nuclear files out of Tehran, which showed that in fact, they did have a nuclear weapons program. We'd always had evidence of this, but now, this was basically having it in Iranian writing, essentially. 
So they had a crash nuclear weapons program from up until 2003, which they then downsized according to the memos that I have analyzed. They decided they plotted to sort of hide a lot of their nuclear weaponization work at research institutes and universities. And we've seen signs of that over the years since 2003. Uh, they have a, a allegedly the center of their nuclear weapons work today is called SPND by its Persian acronym. It was run by Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, who was the assassinated Iranian nuclear scientist. And the I has basically been trying to get Iran to, to cooperate. They've been trying to get to talk to scientists over the years, get access to sites. They've never been able to fully conclude whether they continue these nuclear weapons efforts. And then in 2015, the JCPOA forced the IA basically to conclude a perfunctory report uh, ending the, the military dimensions investigation. Now, this is completely at odds with what the IA normally does. They, in, in a country where they have suspicions about nuclear activities, undeclared nuclear material, they go and pursue every, every stone, essentially. They go and talk to the scientists. They go and try to seek access. They've done this in Libya and Iraq. Uh, they tried doing it in North Korea to not, not any success in the end. Uh, but in fact, in South Africa, which is a really good example, South Africa had actually built nuclear weapons. They had six or seven uh, in the 80s. And then once their regime started to change in the early 90s, they entered the NPT. They let the IA in. It took them a couple of years to fully allow transparency. But once they did, the IA was able to go in and conduct a full investigation. And the, uh, Andrea talks about covert Iranian nuclear weapons programs that, that also suggests they're illicit. In other words, they're in violation, clear violation of international law in, a, in response to violations of international law. There can be sanctions, but that, that, that's not, that doesn't necessarily follow. There's not, what I'm really talking about is enforcement. If you have a treaty and you have, a, you have illicit activities, can you enforce the, uh, the, the obligations that a nation like the Islamic Republic of Iran undertook? In, in, in regard to this treaty? Right. I mean, from my, my perspective, the challenge of the IAEA is that they're, they're good when it comes to declared activities. So a declared facility, um, you know, you, a country has to, you know, go into a, a minutia level of detail of what that facility is going to look like from the construct, you know, from a point in the construction, the IAEA can be there if they determine it's necessary. They can set up, mod- you know, cameras and seals on certain equipment. They can do inspections dependent on the level of risk in terms of risk of diversion of material. But when it comes to undeclared activities, so the effort to take. Uh, material or know-how or something from those declared facilities and use it uh, in, a, in, a, in a covert facility. This is different than a breakout program or sort of a parallel program. Uh, that, that is a challenge for them. They don't have their own national you know, technical means. They rely on 
countries, uh, in particular the United States and, and other allies, to provide that information. I think just on the North Korea-Iran comparisons, and I've, I've written about this before in my prior time at FTD before I joined the government, that there's really a you know what the what I called was uh, Pyongyang's playbook, right? Uh, and when you look at this, you know uh, you know these will sound familiar to Iran watchers, but only the sort of hardcore North Korea watchers will remember this because because most of it comes from the 1990s, where you know rejecting IEA review or inspection of military sites that's something that Iran watchers talk about a lot, but also happened in the North Korea context in the 1990s, right? Um, making, you know, refusing cooperation with the IAEA is, a, is, a, is, is unfortunately a staple of North Korea's interactions with the IAEA. It's something the Iranians have, have done more recently. And then the other thing that the North Koreans have done that the Iranians have learned and, and are continuing to do is to link political negotiations uh, with the IEA activities. So, you know, not separating the two issues. And, and certainly Rich and I have worked written about this, that to, to us, I know for Rich and I, uh, you know, this was the, the, the biggest, one of the biggest strategic errors that the Biden administration made early on in their, in their term when they were really desperate to get back into the JCPOA we have all these issues within the IAEA on Iran, and instead of separating those two issues, they sort of fell into Tehran's trap and allowed the two issues to be linked. And now they have really no way out because they they still want that deal or whatever version of it they wind up agreeing to, but they also understand that there's this slippery slope that if Iran is able to do this with regard to safeguards, that you know, in the future, uh, it will be harder uh, to to mandate that that countries comply with the IAEA. Rich, the the current director general of the IAEA is uh, Rafael Grossi. If, if I'm remembering correctly, the U.S. supported his election. Uh, talk about why, and talk about how much power he actually has, and and how he's been doing. The U.S. did uh, come out in support of, of Rafael Grossi, uh, and it was a very competitive election uh, where you had a, a very uh, widely respected, uh, beloved uh, director general, uh, Amano, uh, from Japan, who had died while in office, uh, very tragically. And uh, there needed to be a replacement, sort of a special election. Uh, and a longtime senior advisor for the former director general, it had taken over as the interim director general, uh, Cornel Feruta, a Romanian. And uh, there was a lot of question marks uh, because in the context of uh, the Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign, what would the direction be of the IAEA? Uh, would there be political influence by the Chinese, by the Russians, uh, by the Iranians themselves, by the Europeans? Uh, to try to exert political pressure on the director general uh, to sort of stay out of the safeguards arena when it came to politically thorny issues, um, just be sort of a, a Swiss banker uh, for nonproliferation, uh, if you will, rather than actually being the watchdog that you're supposed to be, because it's too hard, it's controversial, people don't like Trump, people don't like the maximum pressure campaign. Um, yes, there's undeclared nuclear materials that we now know about, but you know, let's not take the blame at the agency if uh, if this whole deal collapses because of U.S. pressure. 
uh, we just won't do our jobs. We'll just, you know, try to go on hold for as long as possible. And the question mark would be, would that be the trajectory of the IAEA going forward? And what would that mean for safeguards uh, in Iran? What would that mean for the future of Iran, you know, being the next greatest failure uh, or others uh, within the region take advantage of that sort of political uh, window? In Rafael Gross, you had sort of this proven, tested character who had been around uh, Vienna and the IEA for years, uh, both serving in leadership uh, under the previous director general for, for a time period, no stranger on the Iran file or North Korea and, and other uh, key issues, but also as an ambassador to the IEA himself uh, from his home country. And so somebody who had relationships in Europe, in the United States, uh, elsewhere, and just given his longstanding record uh, of doing tough things, uh, no matter the politics, um, whether the United States at that time liked it or not, um, really sort of an independent thinker who says, you know, I'm going to put what I think is right for the agency, for its mission, for its mandate, for safeguards first. And that, I think, appealed to, to a lot of senior leaders in the U.S. Uh, and elsewhere in Europe, uh, ultimately, uh, who support him as well. The difference here is today we look at what's happening. There continues to be an investigation into undeclared nuclear material in Iran today. Uh, we now know from this director general in his uh, report earlier this year during the March quarterly board meeting, there are additional sites that the IAEA has visited that were never declared by Iran to the IAEA, still have not been declared, where there have been environmental samples taken and positive samples for nuclear material found. No answers to these questions to date. The director general can only do so much, obviously. He's doing his job. The agency is doing his job. There's still a board of governors that has to provide political leadership and direction of what to do when the agency presents a problem to the board. That's now a political issue for the Biden administration uh, and for its allies in Europe. We're now going months on from hearing a big alarm bell being sounded by the director general saying, hey guys, a lot of smoke here, big problem, non-compliance with the NPT probably going on. Time for you to act, because the one thing that we should note is the IAEA itself, right, the staff, the agency, they can't just declare something a violation of the NPT. That's still fundamentally a political decision of the Board of Governors to take that vote to pass a resolution to refer to the Security Council. And that now goes into the play of we now have a change of administration, the politics of JCPOA. Uh, whether or not the Biden administration and its European allies will give support to this very independent-minded director general or will pull the rug out from under him in favor of uh, the maximum de deference campaign, as I call it, with Iran. Let's put up for, for a while what your recommendations might be to improve this agency, assuming the Biden administration would like to improve the IAEA, and I'm not sure we have evidence of that. And let's move on to the OPCW. It came into effect in 1997. Its aim is nothing less than the elimination of chemical weapons. Andrea, has it made any progress since 1997? Well, it has. The, the, the chemical weapons norm, anti-chemical weapons norm, has been very widely shared and believed in you know, since World War I, I guess. But uh, in recent years, the norm is eroding. So first we had no the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, assassinate his half-brother in Malaysia using a chemical weapon in 2017. Uh, the Syrian government has been using chemical weapons against its own people since around 2011, 2013. 
uh, recent open source reporting um, has found that they've used chemical weapons perhaps more than 300 times since then. And then the Russians are also using chemical weapons in 2018 and 2020 against uh, enemies of the state. So I think if the Biden administration doesn't start pushing back against this, then the norm will erode further. Those states that are part of the OPCW and have signed up to the Chemical Weapons Convention, which are 193 states, maybe they'll start to think that, well, they can use chemical weapons as needed and no one will do anything. Well, yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about both Syria and Russia. Just a word on Russia. Um, you're right to say that Putin has used them against people he sees as enemies of the state. One of them was a, a former Russian agent who was living in England. I guess he was no longer loyal to the Putin regime, uh, that Sergei uh, Skripal. Um, and this seemed, what, what we, I think, based on the evidence, this is how he was going to assassinate him. For whatever reason, chemical weapons seemed like a good way to go about it. And he figured, Putin figured, I can get away with this. And I think you have to conclude at this point, yeah, he got away with it pretty much. And the other person, an enemy of the state, he's the most, we're talking about Alexei Navalny. He is the most important opposition politician in Russia. Now, if Russia is a, any sort of democracy, well, you got to have a couple of opposition politicians. He's one, and it was it appears that he was poisoned with a chemical weapon while on a plane flying from Siberia. He survived because his supporters got him out of the country uh, where he could be properly treated. And of course, when he got back, when he can, and then, then bravely, boldly, maybe I don't know, maybe uh, I'm kind of amazed by it. He decided to come back to the country, knowing full well he would be arrested the minute he set foot on uh, Russian soil, and that's the case. And um, he's been in a, in, a, in a penal colony, essentially, ever since. So in th in these two cases, um, maybe, Anthony, you, you were certainly looking at this when you were in government. Did the OPCW play any sort of useful, productive role uh, in these cases? Or did it say, well, there's not much we can do, uh, we'll... We'll we'll watch and let others take the, take charge. Well, first I'll, I'll say that you know in in today's uh, you know foreign affairs you know there's there's generally two sides to an issue and uh, but this is one of those that there's a bipartisan consensus here in terms of preventing uh, you know uh, states from using chemical weapons and I think there's some consistency between the way that the Trump administration approached this issue and the way that the Biden administration is approaching the issue. I think Syria is the perfect example. So in July of 2020, uh, and Andrea and I have written about this, uh, the OPCW created what we're terming the Syria model. After all of what Andrea explained and you know, back and forth on Syria, Syria was given 90 days to come clean on very specific uh, chemical weapons attacks that the OPCW uh, put out reports on. And then also because of those attacks, clearly demonstrating that Syria had not destroyed the chemical weapons they promised they destroyed in the Obama administration to detail where the rest of those chemical weapons are, are currently. Um, Syria, of course, did not comply with that. Now, the pandemic, there were issues regarding the pandemic and meetings, so that the next step in that meeting phase didn't happen until April 2021, but the Biden administration continued that policy and the OPCW stripped Syria 
of its voting rights. And so, you know, really was the first example, at least in the OPCW, of that kind of action. Um, but when it comes to Russia, we have the issue of we have more strong rhetoric, more, you know, very forceful words, but we have not yet seen anything from the Biden administration that says they are going to take that kind of strong action uh, like the Trump administration did in July with regard to Syria. And that's, you know, that's what we've called for. Andrea and I have called for is, and just to be clear, it's a 90 day deadline for Russia to explain what happened with Navalny uh, and the Novichok uh, attack, chemical weapons attack, and then explain why they have not destroyed their chemical weapons stockpile. Cause you can't, you know, if you don't have chemical weapons, you can't do a chemical weapons attack. So obviously they have chemical weapons that they have not destroyed. And that, and giving them a 90-day deadline seems totally appropriate. And then have a conversation about what the consequences are. Rich, one other point I want to elaborate on, like you to elaborate on, is Russia also has been, uh, Putin really, has been protective of Syria's use of chemical weapons. I would argue, I think, I think you'd agree with me, that they uh, they set up a deal with the Obama administration that made it uh, that so the Obama administration could say okay we we solved the chemical weapons problem in Syria. I remember Samantha Power, um, who was then I think UN ambassador, she gave a speech later that I happened to see where she talked really bragged about how she had, how, how Obama had charged her with solving the Syrian chemical weapons problem and she did and what a success it was and how proud she was of that. And I, you know, I wanted to like jump up from the audience and go on stage and grab the mic and explain to everybody how, how untrue everything she was saying was. But, but, but this has been Putin's role in addition to using chemical weapons himself in small numbers to, uh, to sort of legitimate or, or, or protect uh, Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian dictator, from using them uh, to mass murder his, his population uh, for, for the crime of, of the protesting against him, which turned into a rebellion. When we think about Russia's role in disinformation, uh, in political warfare on behalf of revisionist powers, they, they see as their natural allies uh, in a political war against, against the West, against the United States primarily. Most people think of what we see at the Security Council, where Russia wields its veto, and increasingly China joining as well uh, in, in the same sort of strategy. And you see that with resolutions just to get humanitarian aid to Syria, let alone to hold Bashar al-Assad accountable for the use of chemical weapons there. Um, they do this not just in the Security Council, though. They do this in these very key organizations, IAEA and the OPCW. And that's why we're shining this light, very importantly. And it's important for us to be engaged there, use our influence, work with our allies, because if we don't, they are going to pursue this agenda very well inside these, these agencies. You are correct. Their work at the OPCW is an extension of what you see at the Security Council to spread disinformation, sow discord, uh, delegitimize enforcement of the CWC itself, the Chemical Weapons Convention. And as Andrea has written on, uh, they're not unsuccessful entirely. Now, we may end up winning these fights. Uh, on the votes uh, after after a time period when we put our muscle into it. But there's a number of U.S. allies who sit on the fence uh, and abstain uh, in these fights. And it's outrageous. 
uh, we need to be calling out those allies uh, and working with them to hold Russia accountable for what they're doing and push back when there is a rogue regime, whether it's Syria. I would note the State Department over the last couple of years has called out Iran for noncompliance with the Chemical Weapons Convention as well. That has not seen action at the OPCW, and it should. Uh, but we see this in the IAEA as well uh, in that context, not just on the Iran file, but obviously there's an open Syria file as well, uh, which we know about and have learned more with the publication of very interesting uh, books from Israel uh, over the last couple of years. Andrew, you wrote recently that uh, Moscow actually attempted to hack the OPCW headquarters back in 2018. Yeah, they did. I think they actually did it from the parking lot. So it was detectable somehow, but it's more of a pattern of their obstruction at the organization, their attempt to delegitimize the evidence that Syria has used chemical weapons now that they have used chemical weapons. And I, I think it's an important point that enforcement is a problem for the OPCW. So unlike the IEA the OP, at the OPCW, you can't have the secretariat uh, go in and conduct an inspection if they suspect something is amiss. The, all the member states have to vote by a vote of two-thirds for an inspection. And because the, the OPCW secretariat is not endowed with that power, they just have less authority to demand that they get to come in and look at whatever they, they suspect might be amiss. Now, the, the OPCW does have uh, an odd mechanism called a challenge inspection, which permits one state party to request an inspection of another state party. Now, you can imagine that would be extremely politically sensitive, so it's actually never been used. Uh, so, you know, states would fear that if they invoke the challenge inspection, that 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 state would just retaliate, demand their own challenge inspection. Um, so that's one thing that you know Anthony and I have been looking at actually is how do you amend the CWC to improve its verification authorities, and how do you get a leader in there who is willing to make waves, who's willing to elevate these issues, and fly to Moscow and tell them we have evidence of your chemical weapons use and we want an inspection, you know, just like the IA does. And Anthony, who's leading the organization now? Did the U.S. support his election? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's uh, it's it, Arias uh, Fernando Arias is the director general. I think I think you know I think the beginnings of those elections are coming up uh, in this fall. I think back to Rich's point about the IEA election that that, that happened, uh, you know, with uh, with Grossi. I think the the organizations are different, but you know, to Andrea's point, um, you know, there there's a desire here to make sure that whether, whether it's, we, we support the current director general for a reelection or, um, you know, from a new, uh, find a new director general, the, the, the core question here, and this is for this organization, this is, this is the dynamic challenge here is the stated goal of this organization is to stop chemical weapons use, but more States are using chemical weapons. Uh, and that, that that is a problem when the only people that the only countries that can uh, allow for inspections or or um, moving forward is the the organization that, that has problems making those kinds of decisions. Um, I think you know the Biden administration. It's going to be an interesting fall twenty twenty one because they also have the World Health Organization, which I know we're not talking about here. But these two organizations, OPT, OPCW and 
World Health Organization, uh, those leaders, the beginnings of those elections will start, or in some in the WHO circumstance, have already started. And and having strong leaders in both of those organizations, and I think that's a consistent theme of the of the monograph is making sure. And that's what we learned with the IEA election. It's not easy. Uh, there were many days, uh, you know, Rich remembers this, where uh, we thought it was going to go the other way. Uh, and, you know, coming in in the morning and seeing the the number of votes and and figuring out, you know, what what we needed to do and how senior a level we needed to engage to to get some of those votes to flip. But that's, that's the kind of um, intense focus that's needed. It's not clear to me that the Biden administration is focused on this. And, and, that, and that's part of the challenge is that if they're not at the very senior level, you know, national security level, national security advisor, secretary of state level, because uh, in some cases that's what it's going to require to, to flip votes if, if that's what we want to do. Rich, and just in general, are you, are you perceiving on the part of the White House, the State Department, Congress, a desire to improve, reform, whatever you call it, uh, these two organizations, in particular the OPCW, Chemical Weapons Watchdog, theoretically, and the IAEA? I think that there is a general commitment from a leadership level, at least based on their public testimony, that they are committed to pushing back on malign influences of Russia and China within the international organization space, Security Council, but also all these other agencies. Uh, and, and their rhetoric suggests it, um, both from Secretary Blinken uh, and our ambassador to the United Nations. Now, they're a little bit behind on nominations and, and especially confirmations. And so I think it's difficult to implement a comprehensive government-wide strategy to accomplish these things without a confirmed assistant secretary for international organizations, without a permanent representative uh, in Vienna or at The Hague. Um, or, or, or elsewhere. Uh, so I, I do think and I worry that they may be getting behind the eight ball on some of these very critical elections. Uh, my view would be, and we made this recommendation, um, both uh, in the from Trump to Biden monograph earlier this year, uh, and uh, in, in parts of the introduction and conclusion of this monograph, Secretary Blinken should have a czar that is in charge of running international organization elections. You need like a David Axelrod running a war room in the State Department uh, with the authority and uh, empowerment of the White House, the National Security Council to convene the interagency, somebody there who's tasked with this as part of their portfolio. Because as Anthony uh, recalls and, and Andrea knows, when you're dealing with these bilateral relationships, it's not just the State Department that's having meetings. Um, it's, you know, the Department of Energy may be having meetings, Department of Commerce is having meetings, the Treasury Secretary is meeting with people. And if you're in a very tough election fight, and this is meaningful to you, and you understand the consequences for U.S. interests if you get this wrong, then you need to ensure that in the lead up to an election, you know which allies are with us, which aren't, who we need to talk to, who's meeting with who, when, and get the talking points inserted for all these meetings. Um, and, and, and that I don't think is happening right now, and it concerns me. So as a sort of exit question, Anthony, what other recommendations do you want to make sure people who are focusing on this topic uh, hear from you? And what are any final thoughts about these organizations um, over the next few months or years? 
I just say one thing on what Rich said. I mean, I agree with Rich, but there are senior directors in place at the National Security Council, and that's their role is to bring people, bring these organ, you know, bring these parts of the government together, and that's where it needs to be happening. You have international organizations or whatever version they have in the current NSC, and then you have the the, the functional and regional expertise. That's what that that needs to be happening now. It's not clear that it is. Um, and and that's a that's a problem with regard to the IEA. We're going to know in five or six weeks whether the Biden administration is serious uh, about safeguards and whether they truly care. Of, you know whether they're going to put their words into actions. Right as I said, they made a strategic error in March in the March Board of Governors meeting, trying to you know create the space for the JCPOA negotiations. That 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 is that space is getting smaller and smaller as the Iranians do you you know uranium metal which is key for nuclear weapons as they increase the sixty percent enrichment as they basically stiff arm and say get away from me to the IEA in terms of their the monitoring issues and the inspections of undeclared nuclear activities I'll tell you what you know peaceful nuclear programs do not engage in undeclared nuclear activities that's that's the simplest way to put it. Uh, and so that this is a real crisis for the IEA. I think Grossi will only go as far as the E3, the UK, France and Germany and the United States are willing to support him. And in, uh, you know, in a month, there will be a board of governors meeting. That meeting is the appropriate place for the Biden administration to do what they should have done in March, which is to separate these issues and to pass a resolution. It's not clear to me that they will do that. I think they're still desperate for a deal, which is unfortunate, but this is going to have knock-on and follow-on effects. Uh, and, and it's going to become harder to, to make sure that the safeguards and other situations. Uh, and then, you know, as you said, for the next couple of months, in October, there's the executive uh, council of the OPCW, and that's going to be a place uh, for the Biden administration to do something substantive on Russia's use of chemical weapons. Uh, and then there's another OPCW meeting late November. So in the next three or four months, we are going to see uh, what the direction of their nonproliferation policy is. Uh, they have an undersecretary in place at the State Department. They have a senior director at the NSC. So certainly they have some of the personnel in place. And this is going to be the time and, and it's going to dictate really where nonproliferation policy goes in 2022 and through the rest of Joe Biden's term, however long that might be. Rich, one question that arises from what, um, what, what, what Anthony just said, does the Biden administration and our various European allies, the EU, France, Germany, uh, the John, Boris Johnson government in the UK, are, are they on the same page? Do they see eye to eye or are there differences among them? My experience had been until recently that while there are still lingering divisions over JCPOA, there had been a pretty unified position on the defense of safeguards and the NPT. Uh, and that particularly the Brits uh, being very forward leaning, but even at times the European Union officials uh, who still kind of in the back of their head no like we want to rescue the jcpoa but we can't allow the npt to be torn to shreds uh if it's this obvious and flagrant the violation um 
And they were willing to stand with the United States in passing resolutions uh, before the transition uh, from Trump to Biden to hold Iran accountable uh, for not cooperating with the IEA into its investigations and not explaining why it has these apparent undeclared nuclear sites and materials in its possession. The fact that the United States reversed its push for accountability and reportedly pulled back at European allies earlier this year, I think has probably thrown the Europeans through a loop uh, and the Brits. And they're probably having a lot of bilateral conversations to figure out how long are we really going to keep this maximum deference campaign up, even at the IAEA, to sacrifice the NPT when all these other rogue nations are watching and would be rogue nations, I should say. Those who perhaps are not rogue today, but if they get a little emboldened, maybe they'll be rogue tomorrow. Uh, this is a big problem. They have to confront it. And perhaps with the transition to Raisi now, uh, the new president uh, of Iran, you would hope that there would be some reevaluation that maximum deference in working. And as Anthony alluded to, uh, if even our because and let's just point out for those who don't know it, because Raisi is a is a hard at the hardest of hardliners with a with a history of, 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 of essentially being a mass murderer. They, they call him the hangman of Tehran. I don't like that term. I prefer the Torquemada of Tehran uh, for, for a better <laughs> historical example to understand how much blood he has on his hands. Uh, but yeah, somebody who is deeply uh, committed uh, to the Islamic Revolution and likely the larger ambitions of nuclear weapons in the future for the Islamic Republic. Uh, so I think for the United States, when your European allies are tougher uh, non-proliferation than Washington, um, you have to really have a close examination of your policy. And Rich, let me just give you an opportunity. Any 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 thoughts you, that you want to express that you haven't had a chance to or just that you want to emphasize before we close out? No, I, I think, and we'll, we'll talk about this in, in future conversations, and we talked about it in the overall picture of the monograph. Um, the UN has a lot of problems, a lot of problems, a lot of systemic problems. And there are some organizations which we talk about, the Human Rights Council, for example, that ought to be scrapped, that are ungovernable, they do not allow for oversight, uh, their mandates uh, may sound good on paper, but they are being taken in different directions by Russia, China, others, and are not fulfilling their mission. And there's nothing we can do about it because of their governance structure. And we have to be fully cognizant um, of those types of organizations. And there are some agencies whose mandates are still very important. And we have to get them right because we're talking about some of the most dangerous types of materials in the world. And if we get it right with U.S. leadership, with U.S. influence, it can be very good for U.S. interests. And if we get it wrong, it can be very bad, not just the United States, but for our allies as well. Well, this conversation will be continued. And for now, congratulations to all three of you on the monograph. And uh, I think we should all be glad that you're keeping an eye on these questions and trying to get this administration, this Congress, uh, to recognize the, the really the threats and challenges that are out there and do something about them. For now, thanks, Rich. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, Andrea. And thanks to all of you for being with us here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, 
or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.